side That was a piece of music entitled Gold, and it's from the artist known as Hobo Kane. And uh, also, you know, some of you know him as Javier Mendoza, a good friend of mine, and uh, happy to feature that. And it just really, I think, hits home with Bernie's vibe. And uh, it's been a little bit. I've, I've kind of stepped away, you know, haven't really podcasted in a while. And uh, my father passed away in recent months and uh, just kind of took a little break. And uh, I know Bernie was, uh, my father considered him a mentor. He was um, a guy, you know, when he, my, my dad went through cancer 35 some odd years ago, I was really young. He uh, discovered a book or I think it was a seminar first. He went to a seminar with Bernie and uh, Bernie has a book called Love, Medicine and Miracles. And uh, at this seminar, uh, one, one of the things Bernie talks about is or he would have people paint, have a paint a picture of themselves and what they really thought. And a lot of times the, you know, our inner thoughts are you you know what kind of becomes ourselves those thoughts and just this energy we have can you know sometimes we get bottled up and then that's where you know it provides an environment for cancer and uh, unfortunately this this last time um, you know uh, cancer hit my dad again and um, you know he's no longer here it's you know a little tough to talk about but it's uh, you know have to look at uh, just these really good things in life. But it's just, you know, my perspective changed a little bit. It's, um, you know, definitely a life change. You know, he, my father was very supportive and, uh, you know, very supportive of my work and just like maybe one of my biggest fans. So it's a little, uh, you know, a little bit of a change, but it's, it's good to talk about that. And I'm really honored and really happy that through a, a documentary project that uh, still in the works, and I, I kind of feel bad about that, but... Um, you know, we had a chance to go and, you know, I had a chance to interview Bernie on camera. My good buddy, uh, director of photography, Mark Luther, he helped out with that. And um, it was just, you know, it was a good experience having my dad to, to, to get a chance to, you know, he thanked Bernie for, you know, what he did for him 35 years ago. This was, you know, well before we knew about the, the new cancer. But, um, yeah, it was just it was an amazing experience. So, and I wanted to, you know, since I'm, uh, you know, it's taken a lot longer for this documentary and just figuring that out and getting a little burnt out. And it's just, you know, such a personal subject and everything else and, you know, needing a little more resources, whatever excuses I'm throwing out there. But I, I just think the message of Bernie is this one that I want to put out there. And I put out bit clips called Bernie Bits, and uh, those are on YouTube. Maybe I'll put a few more of those so you can see the man as well as hear the man. But I just love the guy's voice, and I love his message, and I love his books. Uh, one of the books that I typically try to read at the beginning of the year, or I'd like to read throughout the whole year, but we know all, all know how your resolutions or these New Year's goals and all that, we kind of get caught up in things. But he has a great book called 365 Prescriptions for the Soul. And this book is one that every day he has a passage where he talks about a subject and it's just really amazing. And it's one thing if you go through and look at these and uh, I, I don't know, I think it's life changing. It allows you to reflect. It's, it's a, a meditation, if you will. And looking at that, I want to read the one for today. I popped the book open and wanted to look at it. And it, it's funny how I think it's better when you don't read them every day because it's amazing 
Uh, we got a little some sirens in the background, but it's amazing when you hear the or when you read on a subject that maybe you were thinking about, and it just pops up, and it seems like magic, or it's just like the energy coming through. and And this is prescription number forty three. How does your garden grow? And he starts with a little quote. And the time came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to bloom. And that's from Anais Nen. And I like quotes and going to start throwing some more of those out on social media and whatnot. But uh, Bernie goes on to write, each cell within us is like a wise seed capable of growth and blossoming. In nature, seeds show their wisdom. Even when they are paved over, they know which direction is up. They intuitively grow up toward light and life. They push their way through obstructions, deal with adverse weather, and cope with pest and poison in order to complete their mission here on Earth. Plants know that sometimes they must give up a part, uh, be it by pruning or natural loss, to manifest their true beauty. They are not critical of their growth, nor do they compare themselves to others, which I have a problem with uh, in my life. Uh, While seeds don't have to think and worry about all the things we do, we must understand that, like them, sometimes we too have to fight our way through darkness to survive. We have the wisdom to nourish our potential and reach for the light. We are capable of growth and have the ability to get through life's advertisies. Even the compost in our lives could be better used if we would let it stimulate our growth rather than be buried beneath it. If we pay attention to our inner wisdom and nourish the seed within, there is no telling what we can blossom into during the seasons of life. And then he has a, a solution of the day at the end. And, uh, you know, this is pretty formulaic. It's really cool. Uh, don't forget that seasoned plants also have quiet times in which they restore and nourish themselves. How often do you take the time to nourish, restore, and revel in your growth? And to remember that sometimes loss may lead to life-enhancing changes. And, you know, really look at this and with the loss of my dad and just looking how, you know, I have to branch out a little bit or, um, you know, maybe that crutch is not there. I don't know. Or I, I just don't have that person in my life anymore. But, uh, you know, it's great that he was an important part of my life and that we were able to share the experience of, you know, going to Connecticut and uh, meeting up with Bernie and, you know, chatting with him for a couple hours, interviewing him, you know, letting him just cap- capturing some of these just great things that, that he talks about. So so really stoked about that. And, uh, you know, just want to thank the sponsors of the show. Um, this episode, we have American Mallard. So I want to thank, uh, thank them for that. And of course, Dr. Mark Holland. So, you know, these are conversations I've had over the years with Dr. Mark Holland, um, just philosophical questions, uh, things like this. And I, I know he's He's known who Bernie is, and he's, um, you know, followed some of these great, I don't know if you'd call them gurus or spiritual guides or just, you know, great authors or just purveyors of positivity. Um, but, uh, you know, Dr. Mark Collins, one of those guys that uh, when you chat with him, you definitely feel good. And, and, you know, he is all about taking care of the patient, finding out what's going on in the patient's lives. And that's when Bernie, when, when he started out, that's what made him different from all the other surgeons. Because he wasn't just going in and taking care of the physical. He would talk to them and find out what's going into their lives and what's the symptoms of what they're going through, their cancer and everything else. And I just encourage you to read or Love, Medicine, and Miracles. That was uh, the first book he put out. It's amazing. Uh, one of my favorites, 365 Prescriptions for the Soul. And then he also has uh, Mud, Magic, and Mud Pies. And that's just talking about raising kids, um, 
just giving them the right information, the right tools. Um, it's just amazing elements of life on, you know, how to get your kids on the, out on the right foot. And, um, you know, it's much easier to, uh, you know, to start out with a solid foundation than to start from like underground to start in that cavern where you have to crawl out. Um, so it's, you know, that's just one of those things I've always appreciated, um, his writings and, and I love the audio version when he's, reading that book and I can hear his voice. So you're going to hear his voice on this and I, uh, I know you're going to love it. So, uh, you know, one more sponsor. I want to thank, uh, John Webster pen and ink. And maybe at some point John can, uh, you know, draw a portrait of Bernie or, you know, just the drawings and, you know, Bernie was one with, uh, art in life and just how some things we draw that come out of our subconscious really tell what's going on in our lives. So it might be not something we're consciously aware of, but it's definitely within ourselves and with deep within us. As always, thank you for listening. I really appreciate your support. I hope I continue to bring out content that um, enhances your lives, that just uh, nourishes your brain, uh, that gets you thinking. Uh, please feel free to comment. Please feel free to reach out. Um, you can find me at KenCalcaterra.com. This podcast is on there. Some of my other work is linked to there, video work, photography, things of that nature. Um, also reach out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can find me, uh, you know, just link to my website. You know, there's the hubs there. Also, uh, some of the links are here on the SoundCloud page if that's where you're listening to it. Um, but really in this uh, day and age of the Internet, everything is linked. And then follow Bernie on, on Twitter and Facebook. And he has that presence and he's always, you know, putting out good information. And I'm, I'm sad to say that his, uh, his wife Bobby just passed away recently. And even in this tragic time, Bernie continues to just, you know, put out the positive energy and just the great, um, just the great words of wisdom that he is known for. So I love him for that. I was so privileged to meet him. Uh, that's just going to be one of these memories in life, one of these great life experiences that I've, I've been able to, to uh, embrace and collect. And, you know, that that's just one of the pieces of my journey that's amazing. So, uh, and it was just great to give him a big hug and, and to, you know, my dad, uh, you know, that was a very important for him to give Bernie a big hug. So here we are, here he comes, here is the interview from, uh, from the video recording of Dr. Bernie Siegel. A sentence I read recently said, doctors treat the result, not the cause. So we're treating a diagnosis, but that doesn't have to relate to the experience of the patient. The patient is having the dis-ease that something is happening in their life which can make them vulnerable at a certain time. And that's what we have to look at. And also what the dis-ease means to the patient. What I mean by that is I learned a lot from a simple question. How would you describe what you're experiencing? See, again, if you look back, if I have 100 people with AIDS or cancer or a heart attack, the doctor's thinking, okay, you treat them all the same. They all have the same diagnosis, but they're not the same. And if you said to those 100 people, what are you experiencing? You get usually, say, 75 different words, you see, which could be failure, wake-up call, um, confusion, roadblock, draining, uh, blessing. It, it's all these extremes. So I've learned to treat the person's dis-ease and their experience. 
and it also helps them heal their life. So the dis-ease helps them awaken because the person who said failure, it had to do with her parents committing suicide. She felt like a failure as a child. Eh? The woman who said draining didn't even tell me what was draining her in her life, but she looked at me and said, thank you, and walked away um, because it made her think of things in her life. Oh, and another woman with a headache, uh, severe migraines, who was going to be admitted to the hospital, um, she said the word pressure, and I helped her look into the pressure in her life. Within 15 minutes, her headache was gone. She was home to straighten out her marriage. And, uh, you know, it impressed the nurse when you just say to somebody, what does it feel like? And they say pressure, and you talk about the pressure in their life. So that's what I just say to people. If, it come, if you come up with a negative word, what else in your life fits those words? I mean, a personal example. I've had vertigo for God knows how many years. Um, and one morning I got up and I'm feeling it again. And I thought, okay, ask yourself what you would ask a patient. I said, what are you experiencing? I said, the world is spinning around. And it gave me a message. You're doing too damn much. You, you know, what does this symptom do? It keeps you in bed. So you can't go running around doing things. And I learned, take it easy, you know, give yourself time. And it's just very valuable to use it. Then my other term is the curse can become a blessing. So that, again, when you hear words like wake up call, blessing, new beginning, and people are talking about a life-threatening illness because they are now looking at their life in a different way and changing it. And uh, then it gets back to what I call healing your disease, healing your life, not waging a war. Maybe I'll conclude with Mother Teresa, though I never stopped talking. But was that Mother Teresa said that she would not attend an anti-war rally. And the people who invited her were very upset. But she said to them, however, if you ever have a peace rally, call me. And to me, that's, again, don't wage a war against the disease because then you're empowering your enemy. So when your disease is what you're fighting and killing and, uh, but when you say, how can I heal my life? Then the dis-ease disappears too. I mean, Monday morning, we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses, you see? And changing, you know, canceling Monday isn't gonna change anything. It's how the people feel about their job and what they're doing. So their survivor behavior. And uh, that's what I try to teach people, the qualities of survivors. Yeah, let's go into that. That's a, this is amazing. Uh, what are those qualities of a survivor? Well, the, I'd say, first of all, that you don't let statistics kill you. Um, a lawyer, and I always say being a lawyer is a serious illness, because they're trained to think. And he sent me an article he ended up writing in the midst of a tragedy because he said, I came to a conclusion that was eminently reasonable, totally logical, and completely wrong. Because while learning to think, I almost forgot how to feel. So I'm always telling people, let your heart make up your mind. Um, but this lawyer who was told he had a 5% chance of living two years. Now, a lot of people would go home, get into bed, and die in two weeks. Um, He's looking around, who knows? And he said, he wrote to me, while I'm getting my car fixed, I went in a used bookstore 
and what's in front of his face, love, medicine, and miracles. And that's not a coincidence. You see, he decided to go into a used bookstore. He could have gone to get a cup of coffee. But that, those decisions, I always say when you choose life, amazing things can happen. Um, but he said, I read your book, I changed my life, the tumor disappeared. What again is the sad part? His doctor didn't want to know what he had done. See, I've learned to say to patients, how come you didn't die when you were supposed to? And I mean it. I'd be out lecturing and I'd look in the audience. I realized, hey, I thought he was dead because, you, you know, you don't see him again. Don't come back to the office. And I'd go down and say, hello. How, you know, but a lot of them would say, well, there's no point in coming back if all everybody tells you is you're going to be dead soon. So what's the point of going in for a visit? But they always had a story to tell you about how they transformed their life. And on a simple level, it can be uh, buying a house on the ocean and meditating. Uh, it can be going to Colorado to die in the mountains because it's beautiful here. But a year later, when I called up to ask why I wasn't invited to the funeral, he answered the phone. And he said, it's so beautiful here, I forgot to die. So, you know, those are simple acts. But the personality, um, a psychiatrist was working with AIDS patients, you know, a good number of years ago. Uh, George Solomon, and he noticed that those who did well had certain characteristics, and he listed them. And let me add, the other side is true, too. One fellow was told he was HIV positive, had friends who had died. He was dying. The doctor was going through some papers, noticed that there was a mistake. He was HIV negative. They'd given him the wrong information. So he called him up. In two weeks, he was perfectly healthy. Okay. And what's killing him, again, is what's going on in his head. Uh, but anyway, the list. Uh, he called it an immune-competent personality. Number one was having a sense of meaning in daily activities and work. And to me, it's not living a role. You know, if you're mama, you die when the kids leave home. I mean, I've had men in my office say, there's no point in living, I can't work anymore. And their children and wife are sitting next to them. So again, it's having meaning in your daily activities. Expressing anger appropriately in defense of yourself. And I say that particularly if you're going to be a patient. Um, if you're not treated with respect, speak up. See, there are people who get angry at me for getting angry. You talk about love and you're yelling. I said, yeah, I don't like how you're treating me. I love you, but I don't like how you're treating me. Those are two separate things. So I call, you know, the biblical term, righteous indignation. If you're not treated with respect, speak up. Because a good patient, it, it derives from submissive sufferer. I tell people to be a respite, a responsible participant. Then another point that was important is, see, you learn you have a life-threatening illness. Oh, I don't want to upset the family. That's not survival behavior, you see. So you ask friends and family for help and for favors when you need them, and you don't keep a secret so they won't get upset. And the, other, the next statement or question uh, applies to the family as well as yourself. And nurses have a big problem with this one. You're asked to do something by a friend or a family member you do not want to do. What do you tell them? And almost every nurse says, oh, I would go do it. Then you're saying no to yourself all the time. Right? And the correct answer is to say, no, I don't want to do it. Because you're here for a limited time. I keep saying every time I'm on a program doing an interview, as I said, I never stop talking. So the person interviewing me says, Bernie, we're running out of time. I say, yes, we're all going to run out of time someday. So enjoy your lifetime. 
And that's the important part, that you know to say no when you don't want to do something. And don't live in here, as I said, live in your heart. Let your feelings tell you what's right. Um, when treatments are recommended or prescribed, that you're the one who makes the decisions. Because I meet people who hate eating vegetables and would rather have an operation. And those who hate an operation would rather leave their troubles to God or you know do something else. So again, it's making your choices. I use it as a labor pain. In other words, a woman described nine months of pregnancy and her poem ends with, nine months pass, I give birth to my child, all the discomfort and pain is now justified. Then she says, 12 months of chemotherapy, okay? And the poem is the same. You know, I watch my body change, tired, I sit staring out at life. But it ends with, I give birth to myself. All the discomfort and pain is now justified. So when it's a labor pain of birth, you have far fewer complications and problems. I mean, I've had patients where the radiation therapist thought the machine was broken. And then he said, I saw your name in the chart, I knew it was a crazy patient. So he said to her, why don't you have any reaction to radiation? I get out of the way and I let it go to my tumor. See? That's, I mean, a lot of doctors were changed because they saw how well my patients did. You know, so they went from thinking, Siegel's nuts, this doesn't make sense, to saying, as one oncologist, uh, a woman, who came up here from North Carolina because she had a relative up here who was helping one of my family members. And she said, uh, the doctor told her, don't bother to go to Duke. Uh, it's several hours of driving. You're gonna get chemo, you'll have side effects, you're gonna die anyway. So stay home and just enjoy the last few months of your life. She told her, come up here. Dr. Siegel makes people well all the time. She arrived, she had leukemia. I said, that's not a surgical problem. I'll get an oncologist for you. And this was a group who had criticized me for hours when I started doing the support groups. But now they've been changed by the patients. So he called me after he saw her, said, you know, I agree with her doctor, but I know your patients. I'll give her hope. Within two months, she was in complete remission and went home with no sign of cancer. And what I heard later was, oh, when Dr. Siegel sat on my bed and hugged me, I knew I'd get better. See, the mind is very powerful. Um, and let me give you another example, really, the treatment, then we'll get back to the questions about the personality. Um, when a radiation therapy machine was repaired and no radioactive material put back in due to an error, it took the radiation therapist an entire month to realize he wasn't treating people because that's when he did his routine monthly inspection. And he was feeling terribly upset, sharing his troubles with me. And I said, it's not your fault. You don't understand what you're saying. He said, what do you mean? I said, you'd have to be an idiot to not know you weren't treating people. So obviously everybody acted as if they were being treated. And his eyes almost popped out of his head because it never occurred to him. I mean, he literally had patients whose tumors were shrinking and you know, had red skin and other side effects of the treatment they thought they were getting. So whether it's chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, people's attitudes and beliefs have an enormous part to do with it. And that's why I do a lot of work with drawings. You know, if the devil is giving you poison, you're gonna have a lot of trouble. And somebody literally drew that as a doctor giving her her treatment. Whereas others have love and God and, you know, they're just filled with it. And we can change a negative picture by picturing the result you want. 
you know, several times a day for a week or two, and then the drawing is different and the experience is different. The next question is, do I have enough play in my life? And to me, the definition of play is what makes you lose track of time? I mean, a way I love bringing it up to people is you have 15 minutes to live, what would you do? And I love what one of our sons said. I buy a quart of chocolate ice cream and eat it. I said, I don't have to worry about you. And somebody else in the room said, wait a minute, why were you being tough on me? Because he said, I'll go play golf, which, you know, almost everybody, oh, I'll call up everybody I love and, you know, all that stuff. But now I admire the people who say I'd go play golf more than the ones who call up and say, I love you, I tell everybody I love you. Because he's really getting in touch with his chocolate ice cream. And so when you live what I call your chocolate ice cream, um, you lose track of time. Then I feel you can't get older. Uh, you're in a trance state, so your body is not a problem anymore. I mean that literally. I found that in my own life, that certain activities I could do from operating on somebody to painting a portrait, but I would be so involved in the creation and the helping that my pains were always gone. Um, but when I'd stop, oh, you know, I'd feel it again. And that really impressed me to have that experience. So I'd say, find your chocolate ice cream and go live it. Then your body gets a live message. Um, you know, Monday morning, as I said, we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. So you want your body to know, I love my life and I love my body. Then it does all it can. And the other is not living a role. You know, I mentioned earlier that, I mean, these are quotes from patients. Uh, I can't die till they're all married and out of the house. She had nine children. 20 years later, the last kid left home. She's dead in a year. And I have to say, as a doctor, what blew my mind is, how the hell do you manage to keep the cancer under control for 20 years, and now, boom, you see. And so I want her not to be mama, and I want you know, the husband not to be the wage earner, but to live an authentic life, that we're all here, I feel, to contribute love to the world. So find your way of doing it. And I also see that when people are told you have a few months to live or whatever, they stop doing, I mean, I've watched lawyers become violinists, say, and a whole host of other things where people start, you know, leaving what was killing them and start doing what they love for the last few months, and then they don't die. Um, and again, it's the, it's the chemistry. You have to realize this is not just imagination, but you change your chemistry when you are feeling differently, you know, back to that dis-ease. Um, and a graduate student years ago took a male and female actor, gave them a script, tragedy. He murdered her husband. Immune function goes down, stress hormone levels go up, and they're just reading the script. Then he gave them a comedy, and of course, immune system is enhanced, stress hormone levels drop. And that impressed me because it's not their life, they're just reading. But I began to notice the same thing on Broadway, that if you're in death of a salesman, you don't make it through the winter. You know, you drop out with the flu, but if you're in a Mel Brooks thing, you don't have any trouble getting through the winter uh, because you're having fun every night. And people need to understand that. And again, as beliefs change, um, studies get done. So cancer patients were told to laugh for no apparent reason five, six times a day. Control group, if it's funny, laugh. Those who laugh for no reason lived longer, had a better survival statistic. And it may 
I mean, I can't stop adding other emotions because I learned that songwriters, playwrights, novelists, they see the world, so they write about it. And I recited a poem, part of a poem called Miss G by W.H. Auden years ago to a group of doctors. In it, uh, the doctor comes home after examining this very lonely woman and sits down at dinner to his wife and says, cancer's a funny thing. Childless women get it, and men when they retire. It's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. And the doctor yelled at me. Just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. Well, we have studies now, you see, that again, show loneliness affects the genes that control immune function. So a lonely person is more likely to develop the flu, cancer, just any disease. And it's about relationships, see? This study done in Australia. Go home to a house with a dog after a heart attack. A year later, if you had a dog in the house, 6% of the people had died. If there was no dog in the house, 26% had died. See? You'd say, what does a dog do? I mean, there are doctors who would say, well, if the dog sees you eating the wrong food and not exercising, he'll bite you. No, that's not why. <laughs> it's the petting and the chemistry. Because again, Women live longer than men with the same cancers. And I mean, what upsets me, the reason I hesitate, is a doctor wrote an article about malignant melanomas commenting how women had better survival statistics than the men. And he said, it must be estrogen and progesterone are protecting the women. And I thought, this is, you see, here's a guy who's treating a disease, not human beings. Because my comment to him would be, because of my sense of humor, married men live longer than single men with the same cancer. Smoke as much and have less lung cancer. So sleeping with estrogen and progesterone must be protecting them. You know, he is not asking his patients what's going on in your life. And I learned to do that. Because I saw it in our life. And when I say our, my wife and myself. Uh, she gave birth to five kids in seven years, which included twins. We were both exhausted. We both got sick, and I realized we need help. You know, like that, ask friends and family for help when you need it. Um, and so I began to ask my patients, what's happened in your life? What's going on? And some doctors would say to me, oh, you're blaming your patients. No, but I want to know what makes them vulnerable now. An example, you have identical twin sisters. One internalizes anger, tries to please parents and everybody, and do whatever they want. The sister's a devil who's driving everybody nuts, living her life. Who's more likely to get breast cancer? The audience always says, the good girl. Yeah. So again, the genes don't make the decision, what's called epigenetics. Uh, they have to get a signal. And what I'm looking for is, what's the signal in your life that may turn it on or not, and to help you create signals that are life-enhancing and not, you know, self-destructive. And again, as soon as I use that word, Harvard students were asked, do your parents love you? No. By middle age, 98% had suffered a major illness. Did your parents love you? Yes. 24% had suffered a major illness. So I always say information is not what helps people. Smokers aren't stupid, you know, addicts aren't stupid. Uh, they know it's not good for them. Why are they doing it? Because of the lack of love.
And I always say, truthfully, the biggest public health issue is parenting. If we brought every child up to be loved, they take care of themselves. I was amazed to read that even 10% of people who have lung cancer surgery start smoking again. You see, you'd say, are they stupid? No, but it's like, I'm gonna reward myself, you know, uh, because of how I was brought up and what I went through. And I found that I call it reparenting, that as a physician, teacher, clergy, politicians, I don't care who, if somebody can let you know that they love you and care about you and persist until you realize I'm worth something, look at all the time and effort and energy he puts into me, then they made that switch and start taking care of themselves. But uh, addictions really are related to a lack of love. Uh, if you grow up with love, you don't think of doing things to yourself that are self-destructive. And I may add, it's, it's, I'm not talking about total perfection. I always say to people that in heaven, the vegetarian meditating joggers are very bitter and resentful, you know, that they didn't sleep late instead of jogging, have a lobster, you know, once in a while, that kind of thing. So I tell people, don't try to not die. That's not why you want to do these things. You're doing it to enhance the quality of your life. Then not dying is a side effect. And one thing, when I started doing this, it was I realized it's balance. And I thought, hey, maybe that's the title, balance. And it's a theme. I guess you just stated that balance in our well, lives is what we I need. would use a different word. Okay. In his book, Cancer Ward, Solzhenitsyn talks about something you never hear from doctors. Because if you get well when you're not supposed to, what do the doctors say? You had a spontaneous remission or a miracle. And if you said to the doctor, how do I have one of those? I don't know, it's spontaneous and miraculous. Solzhenitsyn has one of the men come into the ward and say, look, I found this book in the medical library. There are cases of self-induced healing, not recovery through treatment, but actual healing, see? And it was those self-induced healing flooded out of the great open book like a rainbow-colored butterfly. And they all held up their cheeks for its healing touches and flew past. Now, Solzhenitsyn had cancer, so he's what I call a native, not a tourist. You see, and he's intuitively, he knows the truth. It's self-induced. How does it happen? Butterfly is a symbol of transformation. Rainbow, your life in order. Harmony, rhythm. See? And so when you create that new life with the harmony and rhythm, then your body gets that lived message and amazing things happen. And um, it's, again, uh, something I always say that we are potentially capable of. But too many people are afraid, see, if I don't love enough, if I don't create a harmonious life, if I, I'll die and then I'm a failure and what my parents told me. So they're so afraid because I do a lot of work with dreams, drawings, you know, on people's lives. And I was amazed at how few people wanted to participate. I mean, I was telling them, if you come to our group, you can live a longer, better life. I expected hundreds of people to show up because we sent out a hundred letters. Less than a dozen women showed up. And I thought, what's, what's going on with my patients? They don't want to live, but they shared. You see, I don't have time to read a book. I'm not an artist, so I can't draw a picture. Uh, or if I don't get better, then I didn't love enough. And to realize it's not about being immortal. It's about 
participating. See, as I said earlier, the word patient means submissive sufferer. I like people to be respons responsible participants. See, so it's not about not dying. It's about participating in your life. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, recently I read, and I don't have all the statistics. You probably know more about that than me. Is Johns Hopkins University put something out saying, we all have cancer cells, but it's when... It's when our immune system is suppressed, as you've stated, um, is when it forms. And it's, it's telling us something. It's our body that's very intuitive telling us something. And they're, they're not going to hear much of what I say. But, I mean, would you talk about what you know about that? How are our, our you know, cancer cells it, in our body and what, what they do? Well, I mean, many people over the years have written about the fact that, you know, it's like everybody has cancer, that we all have abnormal cells in our body. Um, and this is why I say you have to look at who gets it, who doesn't. So I learn, as I said, from the people who do better than expected because they teach me something. But um, that we're all vulnerable. But the other is I always feel our creator has built into us the potential, say, to overcome these things. Um, and I mean that at all levels. I always say a bacteria. See, if you were a bacteria and I dump antibiotics on you, what do you do? Alter your genes and make yourself resistant. You'd say, how the hell did they manage that? Well, that's in us too. Why is it a problem? Because I have credit cards and children and schedules and bills to pay. And so, again, my emotions are affecting me a hell of a lot more than a bacteria or a tree, you know, who's surviving different parasites and things. But the mechanisms are there. So again, as I said, when you're loving life, loving your body, it keeps those mechanisms enhanced and resists the disease. And those can be cancer cells being eliminated or converted back. And, and there are many in animals as well as in people where um, cancer cells have been seen to revert to normal cells. Um, you know, I've read so much over the years, I can't remember every, you know, article or book I've read, but it's amazing the things that we see happening. I always say, if you cut your finger, you don't panic. You put a Band-Aid on and it heals. So those mechanisms are built into us. But our job is to enhance them, you see. So if you're eating high glucose diet, yeah, you're feeding your cancer cells, you see. So you're hurting your potential and possibility of recovering. Whereas somebody else is paying attention to their nutrition, their exercise, all these things, um, yeah, they're more likely to resist the illness and not have it, just like we mentioned earlier with the twin sisters. You know, they have the same genes, but they don't get the same thing on the same day uh, as they live their life. I mean, it's interesting, many studies done on twins who were separated, identical twins, yeah, there are lots of similarities in their lives and the things they choose and do. But still, that doesn't mean when illness arrives that they have to get the same thing at the same day. Yeah, all very interesting. There's some great, great things in there. Now, looking at our environment, so basically that goes with that. And I think it was maybe in one of your books or somebody else's saying, one twin goes to this environment, one goes to this. But looking at people that are still in their environment, whether it's that banker that's not happy with it, or somebody that's maybe <clears throat> living in poverty or something, or in an area such as that, and then they're dealing with their treatments and still they're in their environment. How, do, how does environment affect people is what I'm getting at. Well, you have to, I've learned this, you have to change your life or change your attitude. 
I used to give out gifts to people in the hospital, employees, if I'd see them acting in a loving way. And what I liked to do was go up and say, what's your name? And they figured, what the hell did I do? And they'd tell me their name. Then I'd bring them a rainbow pin with their name on it as a gift. And it became really a subversive organization because if you had that pin on, you were a lover in other people in the hospital who had it new. But, and, and nobody ever said to me, why do you want to know my name? They all figured, what the hell did I do? A doctor is asking me my name. But one secretary, I said, what's your name? And she said, why do you want to know? And I burst out laughing. I said, you're the only one who's ever had the courage to ask. I said, because I want to give you a gift, because you have such a wonderful effect on people. She said, sit down. She said, I've been here two years. When I took the job, I hated it. I couldn't stand the doctors and nurses. So I went to the office. I said, I'm going home. I quit. And they said, you can't quit. You have to give two weeks notice. It's in your contract. She said, I got up every day miserable for two weeks. Last day, I got up happy, and I went to work happy. And I noticed something. All the people around me were happy. So I didn't quit. I decided to come in happy. And again, we all have that choice. Say, you don't like your job? Change your attitude. I mean, I, I worked at Subway where one of our kids ran the franchise. But you see, if people came in for a sandwich, I said, you want a sandwich? You have to answer a question. What's your question? And then I'd get into things like, how would you introduce yourself to God? What's the best day of your life? You got 15 minutes to live. And we'd have therapy in Subway. People sat and talked to each other because they all heard the other questions. And I had a wonderful time, you know? <laughs> so again, if you see your work as a way of contributing love to the world, then it will happen. And it really doesn't matter what your job is. I mean, yeah, if you're all alone in the basement of a library putting books away, that could be tough. But still, you're helping someone. And I think when you do it in that way, and if you want to change, that's okay too. I mean, you have the right to change your occupation or do it in a different way. But the one thing I always say to people that we control is what goes on in here. So I decide how I feel all day. And I take responsibility I don't blame others for how I'm feeling. I'm the one who decided. And I also, also say to people is what you see in others is within you. So if the world is filled with miserable people, uh, you better take a look in yourself because it's easier to project my troubles and blame you. And I may add, while I'm getting into that, um, Sufi poet Rumi said, criticism polishes your mirror. See? And I mean this, if you want to find a good doctor, go up and say, are you criticized by patients, family, and nurses? And the best ones all say yes, because they're learning from their mistakes. They're told, see, they're coached. I use two terms, life coach, love warrior. Look for life coaches. See, they may be critical of you, but it's in a constructive way, like the coach of a football team. You know, you don't run up to your player and say, you're a failure, you embarrass me, get off the field. You say, wait a minute. If this comes up again, this is how I want you to handle that. See, and you make them into a better player, so they don't mind the criticism. And the love warrior is the warrior who uses love as a weapon. So again, if people are screaming at you, yelling at you, say, I love you. And I mean it, it really works. I've watched families where there's abuse, alcoholism, and somebody who develops cancer starts becoming a love warrior. And uh, it takes months, say, and the one woman, I never forget her story, 
she came in smiling because she had told me it doesn't work to say I love you to alcoholic parents. They don't respond. But she came in smiling one day. I said, what happened, Mary? I was late for work. I ran out of the house. My parents were in the street screaming, you forgot something. I said, what I forget? You didn't say I love you today. Then they were in tears hugging each other in the street. And so that's what I recommend to people. Say I love you for three months, then skip a day. You'll get a call. I didn't hear from you today. <laughs> um, because it is powerful. And if people haven't grown up with it, then it changes them and their view of the world, that somebody brings that forth. A, a, a suicidal teenager gave me an interesting title. She said, you're my CD. I said, what do you mean? She said, you're my chosen dad. And that's what I tell people. You want to change the world, become a chosen dad or a chosen mother. And as I said, doesn't mean you don't tell them when you don't like what they're doing, but they know you're loving them. Um, forgot the poet who said, home is a place that when you go there, they have to take you in. So we have five children, as I mentioned, and um, yeah, they got a lot of criticism. They drove me crazy. They got yelled at, but they knew they were loved. And I have to add this. If you want to win the lottery of life, know that others felt your love and that somebody says thank you, you know, because you've done that. And uh, I've gotten, and my wife, you know, from our kids to say thank you for your love. And they actually said, we want to share it. So if anything ever happens to me, I want to say it before I die. And I mean, to me, that's the greatest gift you can ever get. So I'd say, go out there and love the world. Um, and if every kid was brought up loved with what I call a reverence for life that came from Schweitzer, the test question for anybody watching this, you go out for a walk after a rainstorm and you notice there are quite a few worms on the street. What do you do? What I've been doing for years is picking them up and putting them back on the earth. And I figured you're neurotic. You know, this is what you're like. So, okay. And then I came across Schweitzer's writing and he said, if you're in the street, pick up the worms. If an insect is caught in a puddle, give it a leaf to climb on. And I was so happy when I read that. I thought, you're not crazy, you see. And I noticed our children were the same way. We grew up um, with a house that I called the zoo uh, because you're always rescuing all kinds of pets and exotic creatures. And uh, I mean, veterinarians just gave us all these things that people didn't want anymore. So it, it was ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> I'm laughing because we broke every zoning law, but, but I didn't know it at the time. But the police never reported us, nor did the neighbors. And as I think back over the years, it's because they knew we were doing it out of love. We weren't a bunch of neurotics, you know, who were filling our house with all these crazy creatures, but we cared about them. So nobody ever reported the fact what our house was like. Um, but I see what I saw with that, one of our sons is in law enforcement. In order to be accepted into it, I won't get into all the details because he likes to keep it a secret. Um, he was asked, can you kill someone? And I thought, wow, I'm not sure I could say yes to that. 
But they have to if they're going to continue on with their training. But I also got an email from him one day. He said, I'm down, you know, in training. I was taking a walk between classes and I saw a turtle on the ground. And he said, it must be a male and wouldn't ask for directions. <laughs> but he said, I picked it up, spent half an hour looking for a pond and released it. You know, and I thought, here, he, he's got a gun. Would he ever kill anybody? Well, maybe to save a life. But when you think of all the headlines we're reading, you see, in uh, East of Eden, talk about dis-ease. John Steinbeck, we all experience rejection. With rejection comes a desire for revenge. With revenge, guilt. And there is the story of mankind. That's what our world is right now. Look at all these people going into schools, businesses, uh, government offices. <laughs> then the guilt. Okay. Or the police end it for them. Um, and that's why when I think of our son, would he ever do something like that? No, he's saving a turtle. So it's highly unlikely he would ever, you know, punish a human being. Um, but the opposite of love is not hate and fear. It's indifference, rejection, and abuse. And, uh, and well, here's a wonderful love warrior. And I may add, I don't make up any of these stories. They all have happened. You know, these are not fiction. A young man who was abused by his parents and their friends uh, developed AIDS. He was sexually abused. And literally, he was in an empty bedroom. You know, if he said, can I watch television? They say, you do somebody a favor, we'll give you a set, to, you know, to watch tonight. He called me one day, because I was trying to help him survive. And he said, Dr. Siegel, what is it, Tony? I'm going to commit suicide. I said, Tony, you commit suicide. It doesn't make sense. Your parents are the ones who should be killed. I know where to get your gun. You could kill your parents. And I never forget his answer. No, I never want to be like them. Boy, did that touch my heart. Okay, he wouldn't hurt them. He'd rather die. And he said, I'm going to go down the A train. He was in New York and jump in front of the train. And I didn't hear anything for a while. And then I got another call. Dr. Siegel, what is it? I went down to the subway and no train came. That's what makes you believe in angels. Here's a kid waiting to commit suicide and the damn train didn't show up. And he said, I'm looking around the station and I saw the 800 number for suicide prevention. And he called and he said, they've taught me about love. Yeah, but what a lesson for him to do that. And, and yet again, you read the headlines, you know, religions, nationalities, sexes, colors, we're killing each other. And I always say as a surgeon, well, Kids know this. So again, anybody watching this, I have a photograph of either you or me, and nobody can tell what's it a photograph of. Let me make it even harder. There was a black minister at my house, and he and I had a nice long talk, and then we came out to the car, and I didn't know he had left some friends in the car. So I said to them, I got a photograph of one of us, and you can't tell which one of us it is. And the people in the car look at me like, Excuse me, what's wrong with you? He's black, you're white. What the hell are you talking about? But I know the minister. He immediately pointed at his heart. He said, our hearts. I said, right. 
And kids know that too. I mean, you talk to third graders, where are we all alike? Inside our hearts. Yeah, we're all the same color inside. You know, as a surgeon, I know that. <laughs> I don't need a different map for every, you know, person. But we need to accept that we're all family. And then there wouldn't be any dis-ease. We would all feel good about each other. And uh, your consciousness can have that effect. Another test people can do. Walk down a busy street and look ahead and pick out somebody coming towards you and send them your love. I mean, really, just focus on that person and watch the look they give you when they pass you. See? A study done. Did the doctor show you compassion? Did the doctor listen to you? Those who said yes recovered faster from their illness than those who said no. We feel it. Consciousness is not limited to the person. And, um, I mean, there are many stories I could tell you about that, from communicating with animals to, uh, you know, a mystic bringing me messages from the dead and a whole host of things. But I really feel that life is a school and that we're here as... A friend who was at hospice started calling me journey. We're all on a journey that life is a school. We're to move up in the grades and improve our consciousness and make the future a better place. Because I really feel that the experience of a past life is the experience of the consciousness of somebody who has preceded us. So it's not me living different lives. It's me being aware I mean, to me, the best examples are these four-year-olds who play the piano or sound, sing like an opera singer. You'd say, how the hell can they do that? But I think they have the consciousness in them of an opera singer, see, or a piano player or something of that sort. Yeah. I've been an artist since I was a kid. Um, and it's part of why I became a surgeon. I want to use my hands because I didn't know artists earned the living. I mean, <laughs> or I probably never would have been a doctor. But... Um, it, it Again, it, it, I'm amazed at what I've done. And when I look at it, it's like, how were you able to, you know, paint portraits of everybody and uh, look at how wonderful it looks? Yeah. And another little, I never, again, stopped thinking. At home, because I paint portraits, I have a portrait of my parents. I mean, they have died. But they're in my front hallway, see? So they remedy my disease. If I'm walking down the hall... And they're looking at me, hey, I got to lighten up, make them happy. You know, they're watching. And I tell people, create shrines throughout your home and where you work. Put your picture there and love yourself. And I've met people who don't have any baby pictures because they were so abused by their parents and parents didn't want them in the first place. Um, I had a grandmother who I know saved my life uh, it's a detailed story, but my mother was sick, wasn't supposed to get pregnant. It was a disaster by the time they pulled me out of her. Um, and I'll just summarize it by saying they handed my parents an ugly duckling. Um, and they hid me at home. The only pictures in my family album are of a covered carriage. You don't see any pictures of me as an infant. And I didn't, you know, when I was a kid, I assumed I was sleeping. I mean, it wasn't until I grew up that my mother told me what I went through. But my grandmother accepted me and loved me. And to quote my mother, poured oil all over you and pushed everything back where it belonged. You see, and those memories stay in us too. I went into a trance after I shaved my head when a woman massaged my head. I became that infant again and scared the shit out of everybody. 
I mean, it, I opened my eyes, the room was filled with people. We thought you had a heart attack or stroke. See, I said, I know, I became an infant again. But it's not just me, it's organ transplants prove that we store our childhood and our life in us. I'll give you a quote from Alice Miller. Our childhood is stored up in our bodies and although we can repress it, we can never alter it. Our feelings can be manipulated, our body tricked with medication, but someday the body will present its bill for it is as incorruptible as a child who while still whole in spirit will accept no compromises and it will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading the truth. So when you get personality profiles and drawings by people, you can predict what diseases they're going to get because they're sharing what parts of their body are vulnerable as well as the personality and how it affects them. And these are often done by people who didn't believe that. I mean, a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins had the medical students draw pictures and fill out a personality profile and looked them up decades later. And she was amazed that she could predict what was going to happen. Uh, when I talked to her on the phone, she said, oh yeah, I can tell where they're gonna get cancer and uh, you know, heart attacks and all kinds of things based on the personality. Just so people understand in simple terms, if you draw your hands hidden or no hands, they were more likely to develop emotional troubles. You know, if you think about getting a grip and doing things. So, you know, it was personality qualities like that. And um, there are other personality, I mean, psychologist, Bruno Klopfer, he was given 25 uh, uh, personalities of cancer patients and correctly predicted 22 out of 25 times who would have a slow-growing tumor, who would have a rapidly-growing tumor, say. Um, and again, it's what you're talking about. You know, is there cancer in us? Well, yeah, it could be. But if we are living a life in which it is suppressed say, and communicated with in a different way, so you live a long, healthy life because it never causes you a problem. But when you're living the other life, then it blossoms and eliminates your life. Because again, the body doesn't see death as the worst outcome. See, when you die, you're perfect again. You leave your body. And I mean that. Blind people see when they have a near-death experience. And, um, you know, I always get a kick out of all the doctors who say it's crazy, it's just something happening in your brain. And then they have it. And then they write a book about, it ain't crazy, it really happened. Um, and I've had a near-death experience choking as a four-year-old on a toy. So, I didn't know it was not a normal thing to have happen. I didn't talk to anybody about it. I thought, this is what happens when you die. Everybody must know this. <laughs> you know, in my day, it wasn't talked about when I was four years old. So all these things that have happened make me a believer. And that's another one of my messages. Don't live by your beliefs. Live based upon your experience. So when I say I believe in something, it's because I've experienced it. So I know it's true. Otherwise, I just keep an open mind. You know, I don't say, oh, that can't be true. I don't know. I'll keep an open mind because creation is an amazing event. The uh, one was the landscaper, yeah. I remember. Landscaper, Monday morning, which you covered. Um, landscaper, and then we were going to talk about this Mother Teresa, which we covered, and then soldiers. Um, just talking about being in those environments of war 
and it's the PTSD, just the, I mean, we're dealing with yeah. so much of this right now. I just wanted to get your view on that and yeah. how, how these people can, I miss maybe a solution. What is something we can do or they can do to help themselves overcome this? Well, what I found also working with the veterans at the, uh, you know, hospital, it's the rare group where men are the group because almost every other support group, though it's getting better. We're seeing more husbands and men show up uh, with reasons being related to feelings. Because the first couple of decades, if you said to a man, why are you here? They said, I'm her chauffeur. You know, he, <clears throat> and the room would burst out laughing. And he'd say, why are you laughing? Because no feelings, you don't love your wife. You're just her chauffeur. You know, we hear this all the time, so we laugh because we're expecting it. And now men are beginning to realize it's okay to have feelings. Um, but um, uh, what was your other my thought? Uh, just talking about it, and I guess... Oh, the PTSD, yeah. With yeah. The but at, with the soldiers, they, th that impressed me that here's a group, the room is filled with men because they've been through all the problems you need to face, whether it's cancer or the war. You know, how do we survive? We've got to care about each other. We've got to help each other um, and work together, you know, and have feelings. Um, and so again, I'd say they are more into survival than those who've never been trained. But when you talk about post-traumatic stress, I mean, again, it's, it's what's in our mind. Um, I always remember a wonderful line from a, uh, Irish poem uh, from, you know, I can't remember the author, but he was an Irishman who was in World War and the Germans came out of their trenches waving a white flag. And his friend said, don't get up. They're just trying to trick you. They'll kill you. But he did. And they meant it because it was Christmas Eve and they all spent Christmas together. And Christmas ends they go back to their trenches. And he said, I realized we're the same at both ends of the rifle. So, you know, it's living with your, you might say your regrets. Um, you can apologize, you can make up for it. You can contribute love. You can learn from all your wounds. That's the part that I think is so important. So instead of just storing it, learn from it. And the other, a line uh, I remember from Joseph Campbell was, when you're going through hell, ask yourself, what am I to learn from this? See, if you can learn from what you're feeling, uh, you get hungry, you don't get upset. You go get something to eat. So when you don't like how you feel, you have to ask, what nourishment do I need to bring into my life? And then you work at healing, you know, the, the life. And to keep visualizing yourself as the person you want to be. See, if you act and behave as if you're the person you want to be, you become that. I mean, I always say, we're all here as performers, you know, but think about if you could be the person you want to be, what would you be like tomorrow morning? Wake up and start acting that way. You screw up halfway through the day, yeah, that's when your life coach can say, hey, you're not, well, our kids used to yell at me, dad, you're not in the operating room now. You know, that was their way of telling me when I was taking charge of everything and being overbearing. So it wasn't that you're a terrible father, but it was their, their code, and it got me to quiet down. And those are the things we need to allow others around us to do. So when we slip into that mode, um, 
they can say something, and then we stop and start rehearsing and practicing. And the best teachers are the kids and the animals. You know, they're living in the moment, not worrying about next year, but trying to have a nice day. And I'd say that's the thing you have to focus on. And I often say, if you, if you don't know what to do, remember WWLD. And they say, huh? I say, ask yourself, what would Lassie do? And then go do it. Because, you know, there are so many from Ann Landers, there's that whole list of all the things of um, animals, you know, same meal every day and not, you know, complain and resist treating a rich friend better than a poor friend, face the world without lies and deceit. It goes on and on, ends with, and if you can, you're almost as good as your dog. And I think that we are incomplete, but it's what makes our actions meaningful. See, animals are complete, man is incomplete. But that's why we have free will. So when we do something, it is meaningful. People know you made a choice. And I'd say to use your pain and ask yourself, what can I do with this? How can I help others from my experience? Um, then it ends up, again, being a resource because it teaches you something, like hunger, rather than, oh, just complain and be bitter and resentful and hate everybody and look what they did to me. And, that doesn't accomplish anything. Let me, let me ask you this, Bernie. One thing that I've been thinking about, and I think it's a big question, is th does it take somebody to hit rock bottom to make that change? What does it take for somebody to make that change? Because we all say, oh, I want to do that. I want to eat healthier. Oh, I want to do this, but I'm so busy. I'm so stressed. I'm, I'm dealing with all this other stuff. What truly does it take to change our lives? I'd say, for, unfortunately, for the majority of people, most of whom are the authors of multiple books that I interview, they have to have a tragedy to get them to wake up. And I'm always saying that's what's so sad. I mean, because what they're saying has already been written. And I say the same thing about my books. I can't write anything new. I mean, the last few thousand years, there have been a hell of a lot of, you know, wonderful, inspiring people who've said it all. But, but yes, I will modernize it. I will make it so people understand and fit it into their life today. But we need to learn from the wisdom of those who have preceded us instead of waiting for a disaster and then saying, I'm going to write a book about this. Um, the books have all been written. Um, it helps to write the book. I'd say to everybody, keep a journal. It keeps you aware of your feelings and keeps them out where you can deal with them. But get out there and read and learn from those who have preceded you and had the same problem. I always say a person like Helen Keller, uh, she's just amazing. I love reading. You're blind and deaf from age four and you graduate from college with honors. But you see, what she said, one of the lines that I loved was that deafness is darker by far than blindness. We help each other by listening to each other. You don't need to cure everybody's problem. You need to listen to them then they hear themselves, know what they need to do, and you get credit for being a wonderful therapist. And I mean that literally. You listen to somebody complain for an hour, and they'll tell you, thank you, that was a great conversation, you've been a big help. And you haven't said a word except, mm-hmm, mm, oh really, my, my. I've done that many times with people, and I know it works, you know, even with our kids. If I tell them, read this, do that, go here, you know, help, Dad. But when I'd listen to them, they'd say, thank you, you've been a big help because then they knew what they needed to do. So listen to yourself as well as others, and you will know what needs to be done. Beautiful. 
And then one other thing, and I think as you've been one to say that, uh, you know, the integrated medicine, complementary, working with your doctor, you know, taking that responsibility, but also allowing them right. to facilitate and not just expecting them to do something. Could you just expand on well, that a bit? Well, the integrative, holistic, I mean, it, it really, I've written articles about it many years ago. Um, it's really incorporating all the beliefs, not just what the doctor knows, but what the patient knows and feels so that they're working as a team. So it was interesting how, you might say, specialized we become. I thought I was discovering incredible things about dreams and drawings. I later read that Carl Jung interpreted dream, diagnosed a brain tumor. I don't know any medical student who has ever been told that while going to medical school. And I think they ought to. So they'd say to their patient, what are you dreaming? Because I began to hear those things from people, you see who knew what was the right treatment because they were told what would be right in a dream. But when I wrote articles and sent them to medical journals about all the dreams and drawings and amazing things I was learning, uh, they came back saying, it's interesting, but it's not appropriate for a medical journal. I sent them to psychiatric and psychology journals. They came back again. Yeah, it's appropriate, but it's not interesting. We know all this. That's the sickness of medicine. They, the psychiatrist Carl Menninger, many years ago, became a good friend of mine. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's also in psychiatry. I mean, they were helping me deal with my stuff, too. See? Um, I can even tell you why the head got shaved. But um, Menninger, I sent him my book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, to get comments. He wrote back saying, Bernie, I was about to write a book called Ten Hopeless Cases. Ten people alive and well today who should have been dead. But I'm not going to. You just wrote it. That's a hell of a statement from a psychiatrist, see? And doctors are criticizing me. But you're blaming your patients. But the psychiatrists and psychologists wrote books about it, see? You Can Fight for Your Life by Larry LeSean. Here's a psychologist, and he's noticing people with cancer who aren't dying because he's helping them find a new life. Um, and what a difference it made. But the medical professions are so chopped up. I say it's like the electricians don't know what the plumbers know. Well, we're taking care of people. It's not a house. So we need to have a unity, you know, and, and care for the person and understand the person and, um, you know, combine our literature and integrate our teaching. So it's not medical information. It's a medical education. It took over 50 years for a dean of my medical school to answer my letter saying, you made me a wonderful technician, but I don't know how to take care of people or myself. Now, when I say answer my letter, all I, I just want to know what got to you. You know, may make you think about improving medical school. They never even dropped me a note saying, thank you, got your letter. Over 50 years before with all my continuous, you know, copying the letter and saying I have never received an answer, I finally got an answer. But, you know, when you're focused on, again, raising funds, research, but we need to think about people. And it's getting better. I'm not saying that a lot of medical schools aren't improving and doing this now. Um, but uh, I, one more comment. You ask medical school, to draw pictures of themselves working as a doctor. What do I expect? You know, you'll see patients and doctors. One picture had no human being in it. It was all 
computers and equipment. 98% of the pictures had, I'm sitting behind my desk, my diploma's on the wall, no patient in front of me. The one picture showed kneeling in front of a wheelchair with your arm around the patient, handing her a tissue. See, that's what doctors need to be taught. Handing a tissue is treatment. You don't have to, well, here's an ad. I was depressed, unable to cope. I went to see my physician. He prescribed an antidepressant. I feel better now. New England Journal of Medicine, Sandoz Pharmaceutical Company. I wrote to them. I said, excuse me, I've had a tragedy in my family and all the doctor does is give me a pill. Doesn't even ask me what's going on in my life. Could you just put that line in there? And they canceled the ad. But that's the sickness, you see. Not just, here's your, th here's your pill, but what's happening in your life? And then some wonderful things start happening. One last question and we'll do this other thing. Do you feel that I guess the Western world, I would say the Western world, or maybe just the United States, that people are embracing this message, that people are, are starting to get this? And if not, what do they need to do? What do they need to do? Well, it, it's creeping in. I mean, the message is slowly coming in. Uh, some of it depends on where you live, meaning in the middle of New York City, you're, you should know how to take care of yourself. You know, I don't have to take care of you as a person and all your feelings. You're living in New York. You're a big, you know... You're a mature adult. It's not true, though. And if you're up in Maine and Montana, we have better survival statistics because people you know are taking care of you. Okay? And so, again, we have to recognize the personality of the community and the people and, and treat them as people, not assume because you're in New York in a big city, you know how to, you know, take your medicine and take care of yourself and call the doctor if you need. But it's, again, having somebody to respond as a human being, and medicine needs to do that. One of the ways that would help for every profession, why do you want to be a doctor? Oh, I'm fascinated by the human body. You're going to have a problem. Why? Because people come in the body. But that's what kids write on their application, see? The body is what fascinates them. And if we really spend time helping people analyze why are you a physician, they would be a hell of a lot healthier. I mean, I would have understood. See, nobody ever talked to me about, I did a lot of children's surgery. Why do kids get cancer? Why would God do this to children? Um, and then complications of your work. Um, how do you deal with all these feelings? I mean, at medical meetings where we would discuss, it's called Morbidity and Mortality Conference, but its label is its black book, which is an interesting term. And I would say, if we were talking about one of my patients, can I tell you how I feel? And of course, the chief of surgery knew I was, you know, rubbing it in. And he'd say, Siegel, sit down. Um, but we should have had an opportunity to say, can I tell you how I feel about this? And, and allow me to deal with my stuff. I always say, Kevorkian is a prime example. Here's a guy who goes to medical school, chooses pathology as his specialty, never took care of patients. He obviously had an issue with death, so look where he ends up. You know, I'll kill people, see? Um, yeah, now I'm in charge. But he ends up in prison. He, I always say he could have ended up running a hospice and help people die. I've helped people die. I don't have a problem helping them die, but I'm not killing them. I'm letting them, I'm empowering them so they know how to end their life. I always say, you could stop eating and drinking. It's not a problem. 
You want to die. That's all you have to do. And if we empower people and let them know that their love is still here. Yeah, I've had people that I've helped who have been brain dead for years. Lawyers wouldn't let the feeding tube be pulled. That was called murder. Um, and I pulled the tube for the family, but the lawyer still said, we don't care if he took it out. We're not accepting her in hospice. And I said to this woman who's, again, brain dead in you know, coma, I said, your family's beside you. It's too emotional for them to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Your love will stay with us. If you need to go, it's okay. She died 15 minutes later. So I helped her die, but I didn't have to inject her and kill her, if you know what I mean. I let her make her choice. And that's what doctors need to be taught about their feelings and the patient's feelings. Maybe unkind.